Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education, where we aim to make you a know-it-all about education law, policy, and practice as it affects you. We have candid conversations about education issues and real-life solutions to those issues that impact your community. Listen to us live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern, except next Tuesday, and I'll tell you about that later, or at any time from the comfort of your computer at blogtalkradio.com forward slash knowitall. Today's show is a featured show on the Blog Talk Radio website. Be sure to follow us at blogtalkradio.com. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I am a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity and public education. Keep up with me at allisonbrownconsulting.com. We have an excellent show for you today. Before we jump into it, I want to tell you about a new partnership. I am thrilled to announce that our sponsor for this episode of Know It All is The Root DC, part of the Washington Post family. The Root DC focuses on news for and about African Americans in the DC region. You will be able to find episodes of Know It All and my blog posts following each show on my website and on the Root DC website at WashingtonPost.com forward slash local forward slash The Root DC. Also, in partnership with The Root DC and the, and the Interactivity Foundation, we will be hosting monthly community discussions about education at D.C. public facilities beginning on Saturday, March 16th, when we will discuss schools and discipline. And now, for today's show, a superintendent's roundtable. Superintendents have a very public role in ongoing discussions about education and education reform. Today, we get a peek behind the curtain. I am joined today by three leaders of large urban school districts in the country. Dr. Eugene White is the superintendent of Indianapolis Public Schools in Indiana, this school system in Indiana. Dr. White is retiring from his position as superintendent on April 5th after eight years as superintendent. He has twice been named Indiana Superintendent of the Year. Dr. White is the author of the book Leadership Beyond Excuses, The Courage to Hold the Rope. He co-wrote a second book, Leading Schools of Diversity. Dr. Maria Ott recently retired as superintendent of the Roland Independent School District in California, where she helped orchestrate in partnership with the Ball Foundation in Illinois, a transformation effort to improve teaching and learning. Before the Roland Independent School District, Dr. Ott was senior deputy superintendent in the Los Angeles Unified School District in California. Ricardo Medina is a founding member of the Association of Latino Administrators and Superintendents. He is Assistant Superintendent for Human Resources in the Alum Rock Union Elementary School District in California and former Superintendent of the Coachella Unified Valley School District, also in California. I want to welcome all of you to the show. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Alice. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. We hear a lot about education reform with advocates and others saying that education needs to be fixed that public education in this country is in a state of crisis, that the United States is losing its global standing as an educational superpower. Dr. White, what do you think? Is education reform the right terminology to use? Is reform what we need? Well, reform, it really doesn't meet that definition until some things have changed to uh, make it per se. I think there are a lot of educational However, I don't think uh, our current system is, is broken, per se. I think it's doing what it was set up to do. The problem is it's not adequate for the challenges that we face today. I think the system that we have uh, today was one of access, 
uh, where kids came to school, legally required to come to school, and we educated them in a certain percentage for the university or college or careers, et cetera. But now we're in, in a uh, shift in that paradigm to one of success. Not only must they come to school, but they have to be very successful in school. In many cases, pass assessments the test to, to get out of school or to get their diploma. And so uh, we, we are caught in a transition, but to declare that it's broken, it's not fair, and, and uh, quite frankly, I think that uh, across the country there are many uh, great things happening in public education, but I think we are in a serious period of transition. Dr. Ott, do you agree? Are we in transition, and the problem is one of, of success plus access now? I do agree with that. I think that um, we've been reforming education, you know, going back as far as you can uh, find history um, as it adjusts to the changes that are in our society. And therefore, um, you know, education reform isn't a new term. It's been around a long time. Um, but I do agree also that the, the problem with that is the implication um, that there's something broken. And there, you know, I, I do like the concept of a transition period, particularly right now when you think about the transition that is occurring as a result of, you know, the new technologies that are being woven into the classroom. And, um, you know, when you think of just, um, the rapid rate of online access to courses um, for adults, uh, the issues around the university. Um, so I, I, the, the downside of education reform is the implication that there's something broken. And it should be that education's always adapting <laughs> to the changes in our society, to the changes in what's available for learning um, for students and um, this I think what breaks my heart the most is that sometimes it's used um, to really create a, a picture that public education is, is this odd entity that's not working. And I, I just think that's so harmful to our educators and um, sets the tone across the nation that's not healthy for us. Dr. Medina, what do you think? Should we change the conversation from one of reform to one of of transition? Well, I do agree with my colleagues. Um, we we have been reforming public education for the last 20, 25, 30 years, um, and I believe we're we're constantly going to be, in a sense, reforming education as we adapt to the local conditions, to a global economy, a global environment. A global competitiveness, uh, but that having been said, uh, just going back to you know the current status of public education in this country, um, I, I believe by all objective measures, public education in this country is doing better than ever in terms of producing graduates, producing kids going to college, kids graduating from college, um, even on test scores. But when we get compared to Finland, Denmark, Germany, and some of those other you know countries, uh, you know. Um, we, I, I don't know that it's an apples and uh, apples comparison, uh, and nothing against those countries, but those countries had a lot more to go or further to go than the United States did. But 
The other part I would like to add in terms of access that Eugene mentioned and, you know, going towards success, um, you, the United States has more children of poverty attending our public schools than I think just about any other industrialized nation. So we continue to deal with those kind of issues, and I believe uh, Dr. White alluded to that in his commentary at the beginning. So we've got a long ways to go to ensure a level playing field. Dr. Ott, as you alluded to, public education and public educators have been the focus of much criticism lately. I think often easy targets for issues that plague society like, you know, poverty, as Dr. Medina said. What do you think has been the hardest bit of criticism about your work for you to hear? I um, I think when you're a superintendent, uh, you you come to accept the role that you know you're going to probably not get a lot of pats on the back but you know that you're going to get the hard questions all the time and and I think probably one of the greatest criticisms that have has bothered me uh would be around um you know the no child left behind and the fact that we have created a a system that ranks schools so when you're a superintendent you know you you have a a personal investment in every school in your district. And it has been um, my experience that some schools have had a, they've continued to make growth every year, but not enough growth to hit those targets. And therefore, you know, they are characterized as failing and then a district is can be characterized as failing. Um, it, it's very difficult to educate the public on the complexities of the No Child Left Behind um, accountability system. It had been my hope that um, those, there would be changes to um, No Child Left Behind. That hasn't occurred. So I would say that would be one of the areas is the, the difficulty of explaining to the public how schools that are making continuous progress could be marked as failing. Mm-hmm. Dr. Medina, what about you? What do you think have, have been the, the hardest pieces of criticism for you to hear about your work? Well, again, I think it's the whole notion of uh, labeling and the mo- wearing the moniker of failure. Um, and, and again, it's it's mostly the school districts in this country that educate the largest numbers of students of poverty, the number largest number of, of English language learners, Latino kids, African American kids, and normally the moniker of failure is associated with those districts that educate those kind of students. So again, it, it goes back to what I said earlier that it's not always a, a level playing field. Uh, no, but, but that having been said, I think most of us uh, accept the challenge of continuous improvement and that we are all in the process of transforming you know, education to improve and, and to make uh, educational opportunities um, for all students available so that they can be successful in school and in life. Dr. White, you recently announced your retirement as superintendent of schools um, and and had some very public disagreements with the Board of Education there. What do you think has been the hardest bit of criticism about you personally that you've had to hear? I, I think, Allison, uh, I've been superintendent of schools for 19 years now. And during that period, you know, you're always going to have, uh, if you're making everybody happy, then you're not doing your job. Uh, because the job is going to require you to make some tough decisions. But Indiana has been one of those states on the front end of reform, 
And one of the things in the reform movement, uh, they decided to declare winners and losers and assigning letter grades to schools as if they were all equal was ridiculous from the very beginning. And, and a lot of this derived from uh, the No Child Left Behind initiative and and uh, eventually uh, people have really been pushing reform big time in Indiana. And in several of our reform initiatives, charter schools has, has been a, a big one, and vouchers. Uh, we don't have a problem with charter schools. We realize they're public schools and we're going to compete. The voucher piece, we probably have the most liberal voucher law in the country. We have a serious problem with vouchers because they're taking monies from public schools and giving those monies to parochial schools, and yet parochial schools uh, don't have to meet the basic requirements that we do, and we're still being compared. It's like the uh, apple and oranges comparisons. And I think uh, when people uh, want to uh, criticize and assign your your schools, we lost three schools, really four schools, uh, to the state for takeover because of their academic performance on the state assessment, and they all share, you know, high poverty schools. But uh, if we had been going on progress, we wouldn't have lost those schools because they were making progress. Uh, and I guess out of 64 schools, uh, to to have that number lost may not seem that great, but it was just insulting uh, to be assigned that type of setback when those kids, those students, those parents, those communities were working very, very hard to improve. And so to me, that, that's kind of the toughest part. When you want to assign losers and winners and blame when everyone knows that poverty is the strongest variable of uh, academic performance you're going to find is stronger than ethnicity, race, anything else. And so if you tell me the income level of the family, the educational level of the parents, the location of the home, I can predict what the kid's going to do on the state test. So it's not magic. But just people to be that simplistic is really uh, disappointing. Mm-hmm. Dr. Medina, you've talked about this with, um, you know, growing numbers of students living in poverty um, and more diverse um, backgrounds of students who are enrolling in public schools. How do you address that as a a superintendent and make sure that every student has access to a quality education? You know, I... Well, I believe that, first of all, as a superintendent, you have to be the instructional leader, you know, for the school district. You have to uh, accept the responsibility, um, uh, kind of the ethical, moral, legal obligation to provide quality education uh, opportunities for all students. So I think you have to accept that responsibility. And you need to then work with your governing board, your school board, as part of a governance team, to hold the system accountable to educate all students to their maximum potential and to the school system's maximum potential. So I I believe that you start by taking on that responsibility kind of directly and then looking to put systems in place on how you're going to improve student academic achievement at all levels. Um, And, you know, a, a lot of that starts with 
training your principals and training your teachers to maximize the whole teach and learning process. Um, and I think what most of us are into like research-based best practices and what we can do. And so most school systems across the country in the last 10 years have done a tremendous amount of work. And then there's that whole issue of the English language learners and, you know, what's the program of study and how do you deliver quality programs, you know, for those students and make sure that they're getting access to, to education and to the core curriculum as they're learning another language in our school systems. And that's not necessarily easy to do. But, again, that's one of the challenges that many of us, you know, face in our respective school systems. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ott, as a nation, we are adapting to a growing population of families that are born outside of the country. Um, Dr. Medina mentioned the legal obligation that school districts have. As, as an attorney at the Department of Justice, one of our mandates was to ensure that students who were English language learners received appropriate educational instruction and that schools were communicating with and supporting families of ELL students in their native language. But I think ELL instruction in schools is really just one piece of making sure that students and families who move into this country are well positioned to receive quality educational instruction. Um, various services and coordination between schools and other so social service providers are also necessary to make sure that academic and lifelong success are goals for all children. Will you talk about serving students and families who have recently moved into the country and making sure not only that the students receive English language instruction in school, but that their other needs are met as well? Um, I'll, I'll begin with the English learner instruction because um, I think that is one area that most districts um, continue to struggle with. And when you look at uh, achievement of English learners over time, um, we know that you know they they if they make it um, to full proficiency early, they tend to succeed, but some languish and it takes longer for them. So helping teachers have the right skill set to give students access to a rigorous education while they are learning English is crucial. And we know native language instruction can be a powerful support. Um, to keeping up with the rigor of their grade level instruction. Um, and that we know enough now from all that we have studied about best practice to know that what it, what it looks like. And so helping teachers have those skills is really crucial. And in districts that are receiving many um, newcomer students, it's, it's just absolutely a survival to be um, completely invested in preparing teachers to um, to receive the students in a way that ensures their success. Uh, in Roland Unified, we had a priority for the district that we would be culturally proficient. And so one of the things we worked on was um, ensuring that our teachers um, looked at all of our students through a lens of value added. In other words, seeing the, the human potential in every child. Uh, because I think many districts find that that's not always the case um, because, you know, it's, it may be um, to a teacher's times a tremendous challenge to educate students who are not proficient in English, especially when they're new arrivals. And uh, so we worked hard on cultural proficiency as an organization, um, beginning with the school board and uh, all of the principals in the district. And in terms of the families, um, 
it, you have to ensure that you have support systems and partnerships with agencies in your community. We worked with a number of different agencies. We had um, many families who were arriving in the district uh, who were Spanish-speaking and many who were Chinese-speaking, and we worked with the partnership agencies uh, to ensure that there were mental health services that could be identified uh, for families who needed that. We actually opened a school-based health clinic in one of our more impacted areas of the school district, which um, was, a, I think, a reflection of the priority that we placed on that. And it was only possible through a partnership with um, an agency that secured a grant um, to fund the building of that. We provided uh, you know, the land on which the building went. Uh, but it was a reflection of really our commitment. We had really worked hard to preserve what we called a, a family resource center, which was a, a center that coordinated many of these services. Because uh, you need to be able to do that. It doesn't. You can't assume that every school can do it on their own. And that was important for us as a school district because we had so many newcomers coming in um, to the you know, within the, the various communities within our boundaries as a school district. So worked really hard at that uh, to provide those resources to families that needed them. And I think they're absolutely essential. It, it's, I think people listening might say, well, school districts shouldn't have to do all that. Well, those are your students. And you have to do everything that you can uh, to provide the the wraparound for those students to make sure that they're successful. They only have one um, shot at success. Uh, that's when they come to you, and you want to launch them well. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting also to think about um, engaging students in that process of and, and investing them in their own educational success. Dr. White, um, I We'll share an anecdote here. You and I started at North Central High School in Indianapolis in the same year, 1990. You started as principal there, and I started as a high school freshman. You were the first African-American principal the school had ever seen, and you were very no-nonsense with the students and families and staff. And I remember, as a student, really appreciating the way that you could speak with family members and students um, in a way that was very frank and very candid, and I remember the the special assemblies that you would call for boys and girls. Um, And, of course, we all talked afterwards about what you'd said to each group, Um, and I think we all appreciated that you were cutting through the political correctness and having a really direct conversation, especially with the black boys in your care. Is that true? Is my assessment accurate, and was it an effective strategy? Well, Allison, I think you are an example of the success of the strategy, even though your parents, your mother especially, uh, prepared you very well for school. I, I think what we believe is that you have to develop a relationship with your students and uh, the saying that students don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, uh, that applies to leadership as well as instructional leadership in the classroom. I think principals have to have a relationship with their students, and even though at the time, North Century had about uh, 3,400 students. It was a large school, but we made it a very, very personal, personable 
uh, school because we tried to develop those kind of relationships. And I think it worked very well, and, and we avoided a lot of the problems that other larger schools had because even though I was Cannon and Frank, uh, you guys knew I loved you and I was going to take care of you, but in return, you had to do your work. You had to try to get the best education possible, and the teachers knew that they had to do the best job they could of teaching you. And uh, there was just some great things happening in that school. Mm-hmm. Dr. Medina, where are school districts really struggling, and how can all stakeholders, including parents and students and community members, um, help? You know, Dr. Ott talked about partnering with community associations and uh, social service agencies. Um, how else can community members and other stakeholders help with districts that are struggling? Oh, um, there are uh, so many different things. I believe that the community, the local community coming together, uh, kind of in partnership with a school district uh, can do to uh, uh, provide, as, as uh, Dr. Rod mentioned, wraparound services, uh, coaching, mentoring for students, uh, providing uh, enrichment activities, after-school activities. Uh, the district that I retired from in, in uh, California, Coachella Valley, um, is a combination urban uh, and rural school district with more than 90% poverty, 98% uh, uh, Latino uh, student population, uh, large, like 70% English language learners, and many of our elementary schools were 100, 100% English language learners. So we had some unique challenges involving, you know, the, the culture, the English language, poverty, uh, we had some schools in areas of the district that were like in third world uh, poverty conditions, which is unreal because in, we're in a kind of the Indio Palm Springs area, La Quinta, where some of the richest uh, people live and some of the beautiful golf courses. But in the backdrop is this whole uh, kind of third world trailer park, uh, you know, folks living in those kind of deplorable conditions. In the year 2012, you know, 2013, they're still there, but... Uh, we, we did uh, collaborate with a lot of community services agencies, with some of the churches, and many of our schools uh, were sanctuaries themselves, you know, to the community and to the public. Many of our principals and the staff uh, kind of developed their own food bank, uh, even though we partnership with, uh, with various food banks in the area. Our, our schools and school, like the teachers and staff and principals, would have their own clothes and food bank to, to provide for the kids because of the, the conditions. Uh, and additionally, I will I will add that over the last five years, many school districts across the country have lost tremendous amount of funding. California has funding per student has dropped about 25 percent from where you know we should be at this point in time. So all of that are just additional uh, <clears throat> aggravating factors that when we need the most, we have the least. Uh, California, for example probably ranks number 47, 48 in the country in per-pupil funding, um, and the cost of living is pretty high. So, uh, again, school districts do not necessarily have all the resources, financial resources, to do everything. So we have to look at partnerships with the community agencies and social service agencies to, to deliver, you know, the services to our students and to our parents in the community. And you mentioned some of the, the massive per-pupil spending cuts that have been already put in place, and now March 1st we're facing even more massive federal spending cuts 
um, that are, you know, part of this impending sequestration. Dr. Ott, how are school districts preparing for these cuts that will begin to take effect next week? You know, there is no preparation in California. Um, you know, most of the money that school districts receive um, is in positions. And you have to, um, in our state, by March 15th, notify individuals who may be losing their jobs. So this has been an ongoing issue for California, not only with the, the federal budget and their federal timelines, but within our, our state, the state budget not coming on time. So school districts are um, in the position of developing a budget, anticipating these massive cuts, and yet, you know, having statutory timelines that that they have to abide by. So um, I think this is going to hurt the districts in California that are already suffering because of, of reductions that have occurred in our own state and the uncertainty of it all, what the outcome will be. Um, is going to have to, the, the local level will have to decide, do they dip into what may be um, limited reserves and anticipate that this will get resolved in a way that that doesn't um, hurt dis- school districts ongoing? Or, you know, do they go ahead and anticipate that those reductions are going to be ongoing and then devastate the system by by doing such things as, as sending out layoff notices for positions that might be funded through these dollars. So it's it's just not a good thing for school districts. It's more uncertainty in an environment that already is so unstable um, because of the economy. And I, I'm worried for districts um, who have um, budgeted very tightly. Um, and don't have the reserves because they have no nothing else to do but to to begin to anticipate those as real cuts. And I know that that there are a lot of people saying, well, they, you know, over the long haul this will get resolved. But you have statutory timelines. You got to develop a budget, take it to your board, um, and you have, especially the the notification in California, which is March 15th. If you don't notify by that date, and you have a, you know, an employee then you really have an obligation going into the next year. It's a very, very difficult situation. Mm-hmm. I think adding to the complexity of of the environment is, um, you know, two months ago, Newtown, Connecticut happened, um, and we've all been very deeply affected by that tragedy and uh, thinking about ways to protect our children. And for those who may not be aware, two months ago, 20 children were murdered in their elementary school uh, when a, a gunman shot his way into the school and killed um, killed them and six of their caretakers. There's been a lot of discussion since then about increasing police presence in schools to make them safer. Dr. White, do you think that is the right approach? Well, Allison, uh, uh, let me say that um, our hearts go out to uh, the parents, the students, and the Newtown, Connecticut, Connecticut community. That could have happened anywhere. Uh, I don't think there's a foolproof way to avoid uh, people who are insane enough to do to carry out this kind of act. I don't think you can really protect against something like that completely. Uh, we have a police force in the Indianapolis Public Schools. We have about 60-some police officers. I think we have the 
third or fourth largest police force in the state of Indiana uh, in our school district. And yet, uh, with that many policemen, uh, we cannot guarantee that we wouldn't have an incident to occur like what happened in, in Newtown. I don't think that giving guns to teachers or uh, principals or custodians or what have you is the answer. I really think that this is a bigger picture. Uh, I think there are too many guns in the country anyway, a proliferation of guns, but it's, it's more than a gun problem. It is uh, not as simple as just dealing with the mental illness aspect. It, it, it's a larger issue than that. It, we really have to do a better job of uh, holding people accountable for their behavior in this society that that we live in. And that is um, inexcusable, it's uh, completely uh, uh, not permitted to, to carry out some of the things that we watch, I think from a very young age, things just don't happen uh, on the spot. Most things evolve, uh, and there are danger signs, warning signs along the way. We are so engaged in our technology and our lives that we don't pay enough ten attention to individuals and their needs. Um, and it's getting worse. We're getting more isolated. Technology is wonderful. It's marvelous. And yet it's separating us. Um, as a society, we need to get in contact with the greatness of our country, which is our democracy. But democracy means... The people have to participate and work together. Um, we need uh, help in our schools with counseling. Uh, we have more young kids, Allison, coming to school, to preschool and kindergarten with serious emotional issues. Uh, we've had more young kids in kindergarten attacking their teachers and Quite frankly, these are issues that are a lot larger than a school counselor can deal with. They need mental health counseling in kindergarten or preschool, and we are seeing more of that. Uh, I, I think as a nation we need to regroup and look at some strategies and practices to start taking care of each other and intervening at a younger age and really being more cognizant of what's going on with other individuals uh, we tend to um, be so driven by trends and what's happening that we forget that the essence of life really is, is people. And we got to take care of our people better. And these other uh, serious incidences that occur all happen because individuals um, have some serious issues, but a long time ago those particular issues started to show up and they were not dealt with. And I, I just think we have to pay more attention. In terms of, of the security piece, yeah, we need to be as secure as possible. Uh, we need to take all the precautions possible. If we can afford it, we need to have security. But even more so than that, we need to start being cognizant of what's happening in the lives of people around us. Mm -hmm. 
Dr. Medina, what about this issue of mental health and and school safety and security being one small piece of the puzzle, but mental health is really something that I think as a nation we don't know what to do um, when it comes to mental health and, and you know, children with very um, difficult and uh, entrenched emotional uh, developmental disabilities even, how do we address mental health and how do you, how did you as a superintendent address mental health and students and staff and families through some of these technological barriers that Dr. White mentioned? Okay. Uh, first of all, before I address the mental health issue, let me go back. Uh, you know, when I was a superintendent in Michigan back uh, from 2000 until 2005, uh, I actually hired a retired uh, state police officer uh, who had been a member of the state, uh, you know, uh, SWAT uh, you know, task force. And we had him come into our district and to review all our schools and, and to provide some uh, professional development training for all our principals on how to put, you know, systems and protocols in place just in case there was ever an issue of, you know, something similar um, or, or other issues that might happen, whether it's somebody, an intruder coming into campus, a just really unruly parent or, a potential shooting. So we started putting systems in place back then, you know, by, by bringing police law enforcement into the equation, into our school districts. And then in California, uh, we had our own police force also. We had security in all our middle schools and high schools. Um, but I go back to what Dr. White said, you know, uh, the police and security is not the answer to the whole question. So that now we come back to the question of mental health. Uh, and, and before I even get further into that, um, I will tell you, California has fewer support services than just about any other state around. We have fewer counselors, fewer social workers, fewer librarians, you know, all these uh, kind of peripheral support services that other, you know, school districts, even nurses, nurses' assistants, we, we don't have enough funding to support those, those additional positions, and those have been some of the first positions that, to get cut uh, when we have the greatest amount of need. So, uh, Mental health um, obviously is an area that most of us do the best we can, but it's kind of like a putting a, like a Band-Aid on, on a major you know hemorrhage. Um, we, we just run out of bandages at some point in time in trying to put, put services and support systems in place because we don't have enough funding uh, to, to do all of those sorts of things. So we, then we have to depend on community service agencies and organizations, mental health agencies, to provide additional support services, you know, to our students and, and a lot of times to the families because if, if there's an issue with a student and a mental health issue, a lot of times there's some issues around the home that also need to be addressed. Um, and, and again, you know, California is a prime example where many of those kinds of services have been cut to the bone in the last five years because of the, the serious uh, recession uh, that, that hit, you know, California and the rest of the country. So at a time where we probably need more mental health services and more support services from all these agencies or, and organizations, um, you know, at the same time, we're facing all of these kinds of cuts. And, and again, um, I don't want to be a person that says that without the money, we can't do, you know, the things that we're expected to do as far as educating kids. But in terms of providing additional support services, it does really hamper what we are able to do. So we stretch we stretch ourselves to the max in order to, to try to do that. 
Dr. Ott, you mentioned earlier that the, the school district's role is to educate all children uh, who come through your doors, regardless of where they are, and um, you you really kind of highlighted a perspective that is out there that school districts don't shouldn't have to take all of that on. Um, how did you, as superintendent, get buy-in from your staff members to say, listen, whatever it takes, we have to make sure that we're we're enlisting community help and that we're thinking strategically about supporting children where they are um, as as a community of schools and, and service providers and others? Well, within the organization, um, you know, because I, as a superintendent, and I'm sure that both my colleagues would agree that we we want to ensure that at every school site there's leadership that provides the kind of learning culture for for all children, including those who are coming in who have um, maybe are new to the country or uh, have issues that um, may need additional outside support. So you, you want to create those conditions at your school. But, you know, you're, as a superintendent, you are um, the public face, really, of, of your school board, and you're engaging all the time with the various agencies that are in your community. And, you know, I worked on it all the time. I mean, it was, I, I think, why the, the superintendent role is is one where you ask any superintendent and they say, you know, you're really um, on duty 24-7 because, you know, these are things that your local community wants to understand. I, I can tell you my rotary. You know, they they wanted to understand what were those challenges that I was facing, what were the supports that I needed, your chamber of commerce. These are all people that they get perceptions based on what they read um, in, in the paper or in a business journal, and they don't have an understanding of what it's like on the ground. And so... Building um, that level of understanding first and then reaching out and saying, you know, I, I need your support. Now, um, the, the fact that these federal cuts that are coming at us are going to hurt a lot of the services that we relied on in Roland Unified uh, because they're grant-based, many of them, is a real worry for me uh, because I don't know that whether they have... Um, the kind of reserves to bridge the the gap in a sense um, between you know the time this hits and when it gets resolved, and that's a real worry. It's very disruptive, and it could end up um, hurting you know families in the community in which I work. But um, I I wanted to just add one more thing on this issue of um, the mental health. Uh, I. I remember sitting in a session with Congresswoman uh, Grace Napolitano, who had come to my district. She's very committed to this on the national level, and, and she wanted to talk to some of the families about the partnership uh, support they had gotten. I will tell you, if, if anyone had sat in that room and had listened to what some of the families were struggling with on mental health issues, um, you know, you would not want to lose these resources. I mean, it's absolutely essential for our society to get at the front end of the problems and, and not wait until they explode somewhere down the road. So um, the building of, of the coalitions within a community, absolutely the job of being out there as the superintendent and making sure you're educating your community and that um, 
you know, you're, it's a, a tremendous um, role of that position uh, is to work with all of the components of the, even church. I mean, I, I would meet with church leaders um, because we needed to be in that conversation because they often have resources that they use um, that are for teenagers and having, um, you know, that ongoing network of communication was absolutely essential for us as a school district. And I, I would say that Dr. White does the same thing in his community, and I, I know that Dr. Medina did the same thing uh, when he was superintendent. And one last thing that, that we did, we we were part of the community of caring effort um, started by Eunice Shriver uh, that was designed really to build into the system um, a, a real emphasis at the classroom level, at the school level around, uh, you know, personal qualities like caring, like integrity, um, like trustworthiness, uh, um, that we were working on those things and valuing it both um, at the school district level but all the way down into the classroom. And I, I know different schools use, um, like, certain character programs, and I think these are an important part of the educational process for young people. Dr. White, you mentioned my mother, who is an educator and a retired educator in Indianapolis, um, and she was, as an educator, but also as just a very interested parent, she was very savvy at navigating the educational system on behalf of her children, and um, she was fluent in the language of educators, and so she could do so effectively. How do you, as superintendent, interact with families and parents and engage with um, with families who are at every kind of in every sector of society? Well, so that's that's a good question. I, I think uh, uh, when you talk to uh, Dr. Ott and, and uh, Mr. Medina, they've had a tremendous amount of experience with uh, Hispanic uh, Latino students in those communities uh, where communicating with the parents uh, was difficult but yet essential. I, I think uh, in the urban setting, uh, we face the same kinds of challenges. One of the things that we have done, we have a, out of the Tower One funds, we've employed a parent liaison in every school to be responsible for a a continuous line of communication with parents. But I will tell you this, Allison, uh, our district now is about 20% uh, Hispanic and Latino, and the communication between the district and the Latino community has really uh, improved a great deal because of the parent liaisons and also uh, the the ELL uh, staff and supports that we have. And and what I find, Allison, which is interesting, uh, sometimes my communication with the growing uh, Latino community is better than my communication with the more uh, mature uh, African American community. Uh, our our district is about fifty four percent, fifty five percent African American, uh, 
And we find that sometimes it's more difficult to communicate uh, with that uh, community than the problems we have with second languages or our Latino community. So it's, it's an ongoing type of concern, but we hope, and we've seen results from the parent liaisons that it is working and we do have better communication, but we still don't have uh, many of those parents taking ownership. They don't feel they have any power. Uh, they they feel that school is um, not theirs, per se, and we're trying to change that particular perception. Uh, like you said, your mother knew how to navigate the system. She knew how to, how to communicate within the system. Uh, we're trying to do more of that. We've started a parent university uh, program uh, to help educate our parents and get them engaged in schools. Uh, of course, the whole Title One piece have a, a great deal of parental involvement requirements, et cetera. Uh, we have uh, attempted to get our principals to uh, really involve parents in their school committees and school improvement committees, and, and we have a parent advisory council uh, that meets uh, uh, quarterly uh, each year. We, we meet with community agencies that are connected with parents and what have you, and you can never stop, Allison. Uh, and so whenever you think that you've made a dent in it, there's always another incident to demonstrate you have a long ways to go. Uh, it's a very dynamic concern and problem, uh, but I think every superintendent, regardless of the community, has to work very, very hard at improving communication and relationship between the home, the parents, and the school, and the school district. Mm-hmm. You know, um, your response raises um, uh, the issue, I think, also of diversity in schools. And, you know, as a lawyer, I, of course, have been watching very closely the Fisher versus Texas case that is before the Supreme Court right now, and the Supreme Court will be deciding that case um, in the next few months. Um, and it's a case specifically about affirmative action and diversity at the higher education level, but I think there will be, of course, trickle down to K-12. Um, but diversity, especially with resegregation happening all around the country, diversity is feeling more and more, to me, like a, uh, a theoretical kickball, if you will, for academics and lawyers to play with um, and is less a reality, uh, especially at the K-12 level, as as we face racially isolated schools and school districts. Dr. Medina, what do you think? Are you watching the Fisher case? Do you think that diversity um, is disappearing in the country? <laughs> uh, well, just diver- diversity is not going to disappear anytime in the near future in, the, in this great country. Um, you know, we, we have this uh, growing phenomenon of the uh, the quote-unquote browning of America with uh, Asian, uh, Pacific Islander groups, uh, Hispanic groups, you know, Latino groups coming into this country. Um, so we're going to continue to move down that road uh, where we're going to see more and more diversity and uh, in all our in, – in states across the country where you see the largest uh, increases of, of Latino uh, population – it's like North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, Arkansas, Tennessee, Kentucky, Mississippi, 
So those are the states that have experienced the greatest uh, amount of growth. Uh, but going back to this issue of um, kind of affirmative action in, in uh, colleges and universities, um, I also spent uh, you know most of my career in the state of Michigan. You know, so that whole uh, that Michigan court case is one of the one of the presidential setting cases. Uh, that issue has been around for a while. Um, you know, we feel that you know it's our job in, in K-12 education to prepare, prepare students to go on to college. We hope that they have an opportunity to prove themselves because of the you know the the lack of um, the lack of support systems that they have, you know, just to get through high school sometimes is a challenge in, for many of our African-American and Latino, you know, uh, students. Uh, when they graduate from high school, the GPA uh, maybe doesn't tell exactly what their true potential is. So somehow we, we hope that the systems can mitigate, you know, some of those factors to give them an opportunity to get into the colleges, universities, and to excel. And we feel that most of them, when they do get there, and there's all kinds of examples across the country of Latino and African-American you know, students, maybe who barely graduated from high school, then went on to excel in the colleges, universities, when they were provided the opportunity. And again, many of them, especially with the Latino population, they were English language learners. So it was hard to put uh, put uh, their true potential on a paper and pencil test that they had to take, you know, as an as part of the entry process for colleges and universities. So um, I hope that the uh, court systems uh, and the judges and juries will pay attention to those kind of things and, and mitigate some of those factors to allow them to gain ac access to what all of us want, you know, for our, our children, uh, access to colleges and universities. Dr. Ott, what about you? What do you think is, uh, as we see, you know, growing racial isolation in schools, uh, what do you think about diversity in school as a compelling interest or something that we should seek? I'm very, very um, concerned about the resegregation of our schools, um, concerned about Fisher versus Texas and watching it. Um, you know, I, I wrote a book with two other superintendents uh, called a culturally proficient society begins in school leadership for equity and, and that's what that's about is really helping um, schools and districts um, look at how they are doing in relationship to ensuring uh, equity for all children so it's something that is clearly a deep-seated passion for me and um, something I am watching very very closely I think schools, um, you know, where else in society uh, would you want to do this? This is the most important representation of a society is to ensure that you are providing um, an experience for the students that is representative of the larger society. And schools should have a right to look at all that a student brings, not just a straight standardized test result, but what is a well-prepared student that would, um, you know, create that kind of um, student population that's going to ensure that, you know, the very best experience for the students at, at the higher ed level and all the way down uh, to our K-12 system? 
Well, I want to thank you all. The hour has flown, and I still have so many questions. Um, But I want to thank you all so much for joining me. Dr. Eugene White is retiring as the superintendent of Indianapolis Public Schools in Indiana after 19 years. I apologize. I misspoke earlier. Is it 19 years, Dr. White? Yeah, um, with uh, IPS and with Washington Township, yes. Okay. Uh, Dr. Maria Ott recently retired as superintendent of the Roland Independent School District in California, and Ricardo Medina is a retired superintendent from the Coachella Unified Valley School District, also in California. Thank you all so much for being here today. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Sure. You are now officially certified know-it-alls on how superintendents operate. Have a wonderful week. Join us next Tuesday, March 5th. We will air at a special time, noon Eastern, and welcome internationally renowned Dr. Gabor Mate, a physician and best-selling author best known for his compassionate, holistic approach to the things that ail all of us as a society. Remember to follow Know It All, the ABCs of Education, on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook and read my blog at allisonbrownconsulting.com.